Thank you, Dan. Good morning, Encounter Church. Go ahead and grab a copy of uh, God's Word and make your way to Acts chapter 25. Uh, Acts chapter 25. Over the last number of months, we've been finding ourselves uh, walking through uh, the the book of Acts. Uh, It's the expansion of the church. It's how Jesus, uh, as he ascended back up into heaven, it's how the good news of Jesus' resurrection uh, began to go uh, to the ends of the earth, beginning first there in the streets of Jerusalem and uh, expanding therein. And uh, they're, they're out from, from that, those, that location. And we find ourselves here in Acts chapter 25, uh, where Paul is on trial again. We talked about this some last Sunday, how Paul, uh, the, the, the final chapters here in the book of Acts will primarily emphasize, uh, will focus on Paul's trip to Rome, on his trials uh, there before Roman governors and eventually then standing before Caesar himself. And so we are going to be studying uh, chapter 25 and with God's grace make it through all of 25 today. So I hope you have a copy of God's Word open before you. Uh, Chapter 25 of the book of the Acts is found on page 1,592. Feel free to grab one of the Bibles uh, there at the the chairs for you. Uh, Just a few minutes ago, I uh, had the opportunity to speak to Lacey Motzinger. And uh, Lacey told me how this week she was able to skydive. Now, how many of y'all in here have ever skydived before, right? Yeah, a few of you brave souls. And Lacey can now stick her hand up there and say, I've been there, done that, and I've lived through it. She said that she jumped out of an airplane that was 6.2 miles above the ground. Wow, that is incredible, isn't it? She said from up there, you could see the curvature of the earth, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. Let's jump. Uh, Nothing says let's jump out of a plane like that. And uh, I I thought, boy, what what courage, right? What? um, Now, some of you might say, I'm not sure that's courage. That might be something else. But, but right, just the guts to say, okay, let's do this. This morning, uh, we're going to be talking about Christian courage. I I would say is probably a little bit different than jumping out of the plane courage. Uh, Still similar elements there, uh, but we're going to be talking about uh, courage in the face of opposition, because really that's what we see in these final chapters of the book of Acts. In fact, you see it all throughout the book of Acts. You see it all throughout the New Testament, uh, all throughout the Bible. And, And courage really should be a mark of every believer's life, right? Young and old uh, and middle-aged and everywhere in between, we should be a people whose lives are marked by courage. Courage and courage, honestly, right? Every day we are faced with decisions that, that give us opportunity to step into courage, I don't know about you, but sometimes I marvel at the courage of some of the Christians of history, right? And thinking through men and women who have historically displayed Christian courage. A few names as I was 
working on this sermon, a few names that kind of quickly just rose to the surface and include Corey Ten Boom, right? We, and some of us, not all of us are familiar, will be familiar with these names. These might be names that you would want to go back and read their stories about, to learn more about them. Corey Ten Boom, whose family hid Jews from the Nazis uh, during World War II. Or you even think of uh, Eric Little, the Olympic athlete who refused to back down from biblical uh, convictions. Even a little bit more recently, but still back in the 1900s, as my children would say, we think of Billy Graham. Right, Billy Graham, who preached to millions of people around the world. Uh, even as my family, over a number of months and even years now, it seems we've been studying the life of George Mueller, reading his uh, biography about him, right? Someone who was courageous uh, to take in orphans and uh, to trust the Lord. <laughs> Let's face it, right? Sometimes courage is just defined in a daily decision to trust the Lord in these moments. Of course, we think through historically some of these names that we would say are uh, a great examples of courage, but maybe some of us might even have names and faces of folks who we might know personally who have displayed courage to us. Maybe it's a mentor or someone who has discipled us in the past. Maybe it's a, a childhood pastor. Maybe it's an aunt or an uncle uh, who has helped us show what it looks like to live a life of courage for the Lord. Uh, maybe it's a co-worker, maybe a grandparent or, or a grandmother or grandfather, whoever it is. I'm sure most of us, maybe, in, maybe we're able to identify one or two people who, would say, who we would say that person in various ways has displayed what Christian courage is. Maybe we should best define what Christian courage is in this way, as one author has said, that Christian courage is the willingness to say and do the right thing regardless of the earthly cost. That Christian courage is the willingness to both say and do the right thing regardless of the earthly cost. And so here we find ourselves in chapter 25 where the Apostle Paul is... Uh, he is presented, he's on trial again. And, and will he be courageous in the middle, in, in the middle of a pack of uh, what would all, will, will seem like ravenous wolves who are trying to take him down, who, who, aren't, who, who they are dead set on his, uh, his death. And will, will Paul stand and be courageous? I think I've asked myself at times, right? What is it that made Paul so courageous in his witnessing? Have you ever wondered that, right? What, right, what are the, the key ingredients? And I'm not going to give you key ingredients this morning. I'm sorry I don't have right, five key ingredients to a successful, courageous life. But we will see this morning some different assurances, right? Some of us probably are even saying, okay, how can I be courageous? I hope we all are wanting to strive to be courageous in our lives as we live for the Lord. I, I tell you, church, one of these Sundays, we're just going to call a time out in the middle of these songs, and we're just going to preach through the songs that we sing. Because if you want to see, if you want to sing about courage and what it truly means to live for the Lord, just go back and rehearse the, the lyrics of the songs that you sang. 
And I thought, as, as we're singing these songs, I, I thought to myself, do we really believe these songs? Do we, do we have the courage to live in this way? I, I thought probably if we take the lyrics and really think about them, some of us probably would say, I'm not sure I'm ready to sing that lyric. But then I reminded myself, sometimes you have to sing yourself into obedience. So let's continue to sing out loud these songs in hopes that God will help muster in our hearts courage. Last Sunday, I drew our attention to Jesus' words. And let's go back there because I, it seems as if there's a trajectory that, that, that Luke, as he's writing for us this account, this historical record, it seems that Luke no doubt put these words of Jesus from Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Go ahead and turn there. And, and again, I think it might be helpful if in your copy of God's word for you to underline that or to highlight it in some way. That's the beauty of having a copy of God's word there in front of you is that you can take notes and re- rehearse them and, re- and, and go back to them later. But we see here in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, it says, The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. He said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. It seems as if that, that as, as Luke is writing this record down for us, that he is bringing our attention to these most important words that Jesus gave to Paul, where he said, take courage, because knowing the hardships, knowing the struggle, and knowing what he was about to have to endure, that Paul needed to have in his mind those words, in his heart, take courage. In fact, a quick word study revealed uh, the, those two words, that, or that, that phrase, Take courage. It's listed seven times in the New Testament. Seven different times we see those words said, take courage. And church, hear me on this. Each time that that phrase is used, every one of those seven times in which the words take courage are written for us in Scripture. Who's the one who said those words? Jesus. Jesus said those words. In Matthew 9, verse 2, I won't go through all of them. I'll read a couple of them. In Matthew 9, verse 2, as the disciples brought to Jesus a a paralytic lying on, on a bed, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage. He said, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. In Matthew 14, verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. In Mark 10, regarding the blind man, and Jesus stopped and said, call him here. And so they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up. He is calling for you. And probably in that passage, possibly in that passage that you might be familiar with, John 16, verse 33, that as Jesus is letting the disciples know that he's going to be leaving them and going to the cross and also sending them out, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you you may have peace. He says, in the world you will have trouble. But what? But take courage. Take courage. 
for I have overcome the world. Why is that important for us to know that Jesus speaks to these individuals, this, this, this smattering of different individuals who find themselves in different situations, different settings, circumstances of life, and where Jesus' words to them are the same. Take courage. Right, Because the tendency, we might read a passage like this and say, well, of course, the Apostle Paul, right? Of course, take courage, Paul, right? Because you're someone special. <laughs> because you're, you're, you're the one that God chose to, to take right, the good news of salvation to, to the Gentiles and beyond, right? You're, you're, you're an important person. So, of course, Jesus would say, take courage to someone like that. But it seems that, that when you realize that Jesus says the same words to a list of people who find themselves in a whole host of differing life situations. Jesus says the same words, take courage. That should be an encouragement to each of us that Jesus is saying those same words to you and me today. Take courage. And if the instruction is given to us to take courage, what does that mean? That means that the courage is available to us. God's not going to, Jesus isn't going to say, take courage, right? And then turn his back and be like, good luck. <laughs> you know, you'll never find it. Go get them, tiger. Do your best. The fact that he says, take courage, reminds us that he will help us in this effort to be courageous. The big idea for our study this morning in line with this theme of witnessing that we've been covering over the last number of months is this, is that God's assurance gives us courage in our witnessing and we'll apply this courage in different areas of our lives. But overall, as we think about courage in our witnessing is that God's assurances give us courage in our witness. And this morning we're going to see that there are three different assurances that are evident not only here in chapter 25 but all throughout the book of Acts all throughout scripture and the first one is we're going to look at the assurance of Christ's presence Jesus presence there with us we're going to see the assurance of divine providence we'll see the assurance then of our future resurrection and each of these assurances will help embolden our witness in hopes that when we leave here this morning, our prayer will be, God, help me today to be more courageous for you. The first assurance is that of of Jesus' presence or Christ's presence. Because standing before the chief priests here in chapter 25, standing before the chief priests and a host of Jewish rulers, before Roman governors, kings and queens, and and eventually even the emperor himself, even Caesar himself. And we have to understand that Paul is standing before a long line of squirrely dudes and dudettes. All right, he is standing before some people who historically are, are, are... are, they, they, they have a rap sheet behind them, all right? They are not the type of people that you would necessarily just want to invite to a kumbaya sing-along. All right, you have, we, we, we're going to see that as, as Paul is standing before, uh, before some of these individuals that, that there's a history of violence and evil that has been carried out against followers of Jesus. 
I guess even before we jump into this first point, maybe we should actually read the chapter. That might be helpful, all right? I skipped over that point. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, let's go ahead and read through the chapter, and then I'll draw our attention to some of these assurances that we see. So follow along with me, and we will, we'll, we'll make our way all the way through the, the entire chapter. Uh, three days then, Paul's trial before Festus, all right? Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him, and they presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them. This is the Jews. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem. Why? For they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus then went down to Caesarea. He returns to Caesarea. And the next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. And then Paul made his defense. He says, I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, he said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? And Paul answered, he said, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar, and so to Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. And he said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, and they asked that he be condemned. I told them it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but I convened the court the next day, and I ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes that I had expected. In other words, Festus is like, these guys really don't have anything against this guy, right? Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial on these charges. But when when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him, him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. Festus replied, tomorrow you will hear him. 
So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you, will see, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. So here, quick break. The, the, problem, the problem that Festus is presented with is here you have Paul who essentially has said, I appeal this court, this case, to the Supreme Court. He says, I want to go right to the top. I, I appeal to Caesar. And if as a Roman citizen, which Paul was, if you appealed to Caesar, then you had to stand before Caesar in that case. But Festus says, these guys have nothing against them. And Festus is like, I want to write some, some, some sort of accusations that have merit to send him up to Caesar. But Festus says, I can't find anything wrong against him other than the fact that these Jewish leaders, there's just some differences in their theological understanding, in their doctrine. And so Festus says, if I send Paul up to Caesar and I just have a lame case, Caesar's going to be like, What's, why did Festus send this to me, right? This should have been decided long ago. So that's what's taking place. And so he's asking King Agrippa, he's saying, Agrippa, help me out here a little bit. In verse 26, he says, but I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. And so therefore, I've brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. My goodness, so, so do you understand, right? This is, what Paul, this is what Paul finds himself in. Paul says, I've done nothing wrong. The Jews, what did the Jews want? Why, why did the Jews want Festus to agree to allow the trial to be sent back in Jerusalem, right? But here's why, because it was a 60-mile stretch between Caesarea and Jerusalem, and those Jewish, what was their plan? And understand, we, the Jewish leaders now, they're the ones who are planning this. What was their plan along the way? Was to ambush Paul and the Roman guard, they never intended for Paul ever to stand trial in Jerusalem because Paul, the only way Paul was going to be getting back to Jerusalem is if he was carried back in a body bag was their goal. And keep in mind, Paul knew that there was a plot against his life because in chap a couple chapters previously, it had been the, the word of the plot had gotten to Paul. So Paul understands. So you have to understand what the situation that Paul, Paul finds himself in. And yet still, Paul is courageous in the face of all of this. And now let's go back to the assurance of Christ's presence. Paul knew that he was not standing alone. That he, he had the assurance of Jesus' presence with him. Because back in chapter 23, verse 11, why Jesus stood beside him there. That in that moment, Jesus reveals himself. It's like Jesus pulls back the curtains of eternity that separate the temporary from, from the eternal. And he gets a glimpse of Jesus standing there beside him. And, stand, and, and, and Paul understands that he is not standing alone. Throughout the pages of Scripture, we are assured of the Lord's presence with us. Deuteronomy 31, the Lord himself goes before you and what will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. 
Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Hebrews 13, God has said, never will I leave you nor forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. What? I will not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? So here in the final chapters of Acts, the circumstances, from, an, from a human perspective, they seem to be moving from bad to worse for Paul. He's a Roman prisoner, he's confined to Roman barracks, and he's now under Roman guard. Yet it was while he was imprisoned that Jesus visibly and physically stood beside Paul and said, Paul, take courage. Now we have to understand that in previous circumstances, Paul had actually, there were times where Paul had, and Paul and Peter and others had been miraculously delivered from jail cells, hadn't they? But not this time. Not this time. Instead, what happened? Rather than delivering him from the circumstances, what happens? Jesus met with Paul right in that jail cell. Church, oftentimes we demand, or we try to make demands to the Lord that God deliver us out of our circumstances. Isn't that oftentimes our prayer? God, take this hardship from me. God, remove this cancer from my body. Lord, give me a better job. Paul could have been praying, Lord, get me out of this prison. But instead, what we see, it was better for Paul to remain in prison so that Jesus could meet with him there than to release him. And maybe our prayers should be Jesus in the midst of my circumstances would you meet with me church God knows where you are Paul was not lost in some some role of prisoners Jesus knew where Paul was Jesus was there with him and church God knows where you are And Jesus is with you. You are not alone. And because we are not alone, we have no reason to fear. Even if everyone else turns their back on you, Jesus is enough. Could God remove the heartache you're experiencing? Certainly. Could God uh, remove, take you out of the trial that you're walking through? Could God miraculously heal the cancer from your body that you're battling? Could God fix all the, ro- the wrong things in your difficult marriage that you're enduring? Could God, could God f- fill all of that lonely- loneliness that you might be living through, right? Could, could God change all of those circumstances according to our plans, according to what we, do- what, what we want? Absolutely, God could fix it all based upon what we desire. But maybe that's not what is best for us in this season. Sometimes God uses the circumstances to bring us to a point of helplessness only to reveal Himself to us in ways that we've never experienced before. And it's when we are bankrupt of any strength to go on that God steps in 
And he says, here I am. Take courage. And specifically in our witnessing, we're reminded that Jesus is with us. Young man, young woman, high school student, as you are there in the hallways of your school, Jesus is with you. In the classrooms of your higher education, Jesus is with you. In the cubicles and by the water coolers of our workplace, Jesus is with you. And Jesus is saying those same words, take courage. Right? We consider the picture of these men who are huddled around Paul. They're, they're, they're in that passage that, that as, as, as the, the, the trial is resumed there in Caesarea and, and, and the charges are being brought to him, it, it, the, the imagery, the, the language that is used is that Paul is standing there in the middle and they have gathered around him like a group of bullies pointing their wretched and wrinkled fingers because I can only imagine that's what they look like, pointing their old wretched and wrinkled fingers at Paul and making these false accusations like vultures or a pack of ravenous wolves who are ready to feast, they're encircling Paul. Paul is not standing alone. And so it's, that's why in Romans chapter 8, Paul says these words and listen to them. What then shall we say in response to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? If God is for us, if God is with me, then though the world circle around me, I'm not alone. And so Paul was courageous because he was assured of Christ's presence. And the next one then is this, the assurance of divine providence. Another reason why Paul took courage is because he knew that God was in charge, that God was sovereign over his circumstances. I wonder, have you ever questioned God's plans, plan for your life? Have you ever allowed the circumstances that you find yourself in to cause you to doubt that God really knows what he is doing? We have here, in these verses, in these chapters, we get a glimpse of how God still is in charge. And in a few minutes, we're going to see how Paul actually later looks back. And he says, oh, God was in charge in those moments. But we have this, the assurance of divine providence. You might say, providence, Michael, what exactly is providence? Let me just read for you a definition of providence from the Heidelberg Catechism, it says that providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures. And he rules them so that the leaf and the blade of grass, that rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. In other words, the assurance of divine providence helps us know that the circumstances 
and the situations that you find yourself in right now have not caught God by surprise. Throughout Scripture, we're reminded that God rules and reigns in all circumstances. That God is sovereign over all situations, whether it's from the biggest picture, from the big picture to the tiniest details. God is sovereign. He is Lord over it all. Even the evil that is permitted to happen in your life and my life. God uses that. God employs that in his storyline for our lives, for our good, and his glory. Church, there's only, if, if, if God is not sovereign over all, then how can Paul write these familiar words in Romans 8.28 that many of you know and many of you rehearse in times of difficulty and questioning, that God, that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purposes. According to His purposes. So what we see here is divine providence is displayed here in the text. Right, we have to understand that in, here in chapter 25, there's a tension between, between the Romans, between Festus and the Jews. Right, if you go back a chapter or two, you remember that Felix is the one who kept Paul imprisoned. Chapter 24 concludes where it says that as Felix left his role as a governor, he allowed Paul to remain in prison. It was typical that the prisoners under the, who, who were taken in prison under when, when a Roman governor was in charge, those whom he had imprisoned, when that governor leaves that position, those prisoners whom he had imprisoned are released from prison. But Felix here, he kind of leaves these leftovers here for Festus to deal with. And, and Paul might say, what, what gives? Right? What, why didn't you let me out of jail? What's going on? And so we see here that Festus then, the, right, what are the Jews? The Jews, they immediately pounce and they immediately say, hey, you know, bring this guy to, to Jerusalem. Let's try him there, right? But they don't. It's interesting how Festus, who was a politician, he could have played into that hand very easily for political gain. There was tension between the Romans and the Jews and he could have kind of offered Paul to them as a political pawn and kind of won some favor with them. But, but what do we see that in God's providence, in God's sovereign design, in God's sovereign plan, God preserves Paul how? In prison. Through divine providence, God's ambassador and the herald of the gospel is protected by imprisonment right some outsiders may look on Paul's imprisonment and wonder what God is doing or be tempted to doubt yet all along on the inside God is carrying out his perfect plan which includes Paul's imprisonment when we come to trust in divine providence and believe that God reigns and rules over it all then we're free to be courageous to live without fear when we believe that God is in control over it all, then we don't have to be afraid about the future. College student, you don't have to be anxious as you head off to college. 
when we believe that God is in control and that all things are working together, what does that do? That allows us to learn to be patient in the waiting. It means that we can learn to choose joy during the heartache seasons. It means that I don't have to become embittered in the suffering. And it means that we can be thankful in both the good times and thankful in the hard times. Church, you sang those lyrics just a few moments ago. We have to be reminded that God is always interested in your good. God is always interested in your good. And what is your good? That you would become more like Jesus. And that God will employ and put into action all circumstances that when we respond rightly to them will help us become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. One, one, one author writes that God does not, right, He doesn't vacillate between loving you and loathing you, right? He, he's not like stuck in this quandary like, oh, today should I love them or not? <laughs> today I kind of feel like I'm loathing them a little bit. That God doesn't find himself in that no man's land where he's going back and forth, back and forth. Instead, God's eyes are fixed on your good. And so trusting in divine providence, trusting in God's loving, sovereign hand allows us to be courageous even in these times, in these seasons, in these situations that might be otherwise troubling for us. Let's quickly, shall we, turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This is important for us to quickly turn there. So, so if you're Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, okay, so you're going to be turning toward the back of the Bible there. Philippians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Philippians chapter 1, you'll find it on page 1670. So Paul here, he's looking, he, he's considering his imprisonment here. All right, is what he's doing. And notice what does he say? He says, as a result, as a result of what? As a result of my imprisonment. As a result, it has become clear. Let, let me jump back to, to verse 12. All right. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters. He's writing other believers regarding his pr- imprisonment. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident, look at this, have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel. How? Without fear. Courageously. See, what Paul says as he's looking back on his circumstances, sometimes it's hard to believe these truths in the midst of them, but as Paul is looking back and he's saying, listen, God's God's sovereign hand, by God's divine providence, by his plans, he he had me imprisoned. Why? So that I can be able to be chained to Roman prisoners. And while I'm chained with Roman prisoners, I have an audience beside me. And what am I going to do while that while that, that, that Roman guard is chained to me for six hours, what am I going to do? I'm going to share the gospel with, a, with, with an audience who can't leave me. 
And Paul says there in Philippians chapter 1 that the gospel has spread through my imprisonment all throughout the palace guard. Paul was courageous because he trusted that God had him in prison for a reason. So might we come to trust our circumstances and be courageous witnesses in the midst of them. And finally, my time, I know my time is is running thin here. Let's look at the assurance of future resurrection. Paul's courage was emboldened by the assurance of his future resurrection. And this assurance removed Paul's fear of death. Look there in Acts chapter 25, back here in, in the book of Acts chapter 25, verses 10 through 11, Paul answered again. His accusers are circling around him like ravenous wolves and vultures. They're accusing him. And here's what Paul says, standing before Festus. He says, I, I am now standing before Caesar's court, verse 10. I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. He says, I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. He says, if, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving of death, notice what does he do? What does he say? He says, I do not refuse to die. We know that the Jews were threatening Paul with death. They were hoping the Romans would hand Paul over to them or or, or that the Romans even would execute Paul himself on some sort of charge of treason that wasn't true. However, in the midst of those false accusations, which, which all of those scenarios could have played out, but God, by God's providence, he keeps Paul there in prison. And yet Paul, in the midst of it, what does he do? He says, Paul says, I did not fear death. Paul says, I, I'm not afraid to die. Right? How do you become courage, courageous in the face of threats against your life? The only way you can be courageous in those moments is if the threat of death, if, is if the significance, the pain of death, if the victory of death has been removed. Paul understood how the certainty of Jesus' resurrection provided an assurance of the believer's future resurrection into eternal life, therefore removing any fear of death. Because Jesus has already defeated the enemy of death, we do not need to be held hostage by any fear. For for the power of sin and death is powerless against us. The purpose of our lives, so many people live their, the purpose of their lives is simply, it's, it's aimed at overcoming the grave of living a little bit longer, right? Defeating that death. But we understand that that is not a battle that we need to wage war against. Because we have the hope of eternal life with Christ Jesus. And the assurance of our future resurrection gives us courage in our witnessing. Gives us courage in our witnessing. And so when we are met in those moments where what we believe is challenged or when the world presents to us 
truths that really aren't truths, but they're mantras of the world. What happens is because we, we have no reason to fear anything that the world can bring us, because again, our final fear, the fear of death, has been removed through the victory of Christ Jesus on the cross. And when we have nothing to fear, it's in those moments that we can stand tall and courageous and declare the good news of Jesus and speak what is right and true and push against the world's messages. And it's in those moments when we are challenged that our loyalty is truly put on display. Right? I can preach these things, but if I'm willing to stand up courageously in the thick of the battle, then, then, then am I truly being courageous? It's easy to preach these types of truths to a bunch of other believers who sit there. Some of you are shaking your head in agreement. Others of you are shaking your head and about not off to sleep. But, but it's easy to preach these things in this context, isn't it? It's when we get out into the world that our loyalty, our courage is then put on display. And if we have the assurance of a future resurrection, then we can stand with courage. Courage in our daily lives, it requires courage to live a godly life in an ungodly world system. Church, the purity of our lives, the topics of our conversations will act as a conscience, conscience for the rest of the world. Courage in your witness is not just what is spoken, but how you live. The way we live for the Lord, the way we seek after His kingdom as we seek toward His holiness will serve as a courageous witness to a godless world. And it requires courage for us to do what is right in a world that celebrates what is wrong. And so church, we are daily given the opportunity to be courageous in our witness. Our daily lives are marked by courageous decision moments. Will you stand? Will you be reminded that Jesus is present with you in that moment? Will you be reminded that Jesus has you there for a reason to be courageous in that? Knowing that we have the hope of eternity with Him. And we have no reason to fear. We have no reason for our knees to buckle. May the Lord help us be courageous. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray now that you would apply these truths to our hearts. And God, that these truths then would flow into our actions. God, help us to hear those words Take courage. 
and then, Lord, to be obedient. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.